The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Saturday, June 4th. Craft beer and Girl Scout cookies presented by Bill Sizak from Stone Brewing. Welcome first to Savor, an American craft beer and food experience, and, and more importantly to the Savor salons, one of the little special places within Savor where you not only get to taste beers that are not available on the floor, but also hear some of the stories behind the beers and, and interact with the people in the brewing community. We're extra lucky in this salon to have Bill Sysak. <laughs> Dr. Bill, as he is known in the craft beer community, is the craft beer ambassador at Stone Brewing Company. And he's gonna walk us through a pairing with amazing beers and Girl Scout cookies. So yes. um, one housekeeping note, at the end we are gonna do a Q&A and these salons are being recorded for craftbeerradio.com. So for the benefit of the people who aren't as lucky as you to be here tasting the beers um, and getting to try the Girl Scout cookies, if you could put your questions into the mic, which I will run back to you, other people will be able to hear them on the recording. All right, Dr. Bill. Thank you, Bart. Uh, welcome everybody to Savor. I'm turned on. You guys can hear me? I'm, I'm loud anyways, but okay. Uh, as Bart said, I'm the craft beer ambassador at Stone Brewing Company. Uh, oh, sorry, we got rid of the company once we went international with our Berlin brewery. So Stone Brewing, 10th um, largest craft brewery in the United States. I am the beer expert. Basically, I set the beer philosophy there. Uh, what else about me? I've been around craft beer for 39 years. I started in 77. I know you're looking at me. I'm not that old. I started at 15, but don't tell anybody, okay? Uh, <laughs> What else about me? I'm considered one of the foremost experts, I guess, in beer and food, uh, whiskey, spirits, cocktails, wine, cigars, and did I say food? Yeah, all those things in pairing and just uh, being a uh, Burgundian, as I call myself, doing that all these years. Uh, I've been known to be one of the first people to sell our beer privately. I have a seller of over 2,500 beers for the last three decades that I rotate through. Uh, what other things are on my stone baseball cards? 50,000 different beers, 1,500 breweries, been to Belgium 38 times. So yeah, I like to enjoy myself. Um, anyways, why am I here? Well, this is part of my master pairing series where I talk a little bit about the way I like to pair beer and food. Uh, beer is by far the most versatile of all the beverages. It can pair with anything. I can pair beer with anything. You can challenge me at the end with a food item. As long as I know what it is, I can pair it on the spot, and what that means is you can pair it on. You can pair it with a little bit of practice, which is really fun. Uh, today we're going to be talking about beer and Girl Scout cookies. I first did my beer and, first beer and Girl Scout cookie event five years ago. Now it's becoming a little more commonplace. Uh, I kind of have a, a apology to make. I forgot to check with the BA, so I had invited some Girl Scouts here. They set up for them and everything, but I forgot about the age code. So sorry, guys. <laughs> And one other little housekeeping rule, they actually uh, had the rest of the rah-rah raisins, so we had to quarter those. I apologize, it's their favorite pairing too, so I'm sure they were just as disappointed as you were. But we'll carry on without them. Um, why beer and food? Well, like I said, it's the most versatile of all beverages. It has carbonation, every beer should have carbonation, and if it does, it's scrubbing bubbles on the palate, it cleanses your palate. It has Bitterness, which cuts through the richest fats, proteins, things like chocolates and cheeses and meats. It has sweetness, which handles the hottest chili. 
and then it has the roasting of the grains, which occurs with the term called the Maillard reaction. It's actually also a fancy chef term. And what the Maillard reaction is, are there any vegetarians in here? I apologize in advance, my dear. The Maillard reaction is a non-enzymatic browning of meats and breads. So when you're baking a bread and it starts to brown and you smell it wafting through the house, that's the Maillard reaction. Or here's the apology. You take a big slab of meat and you put it on the grill and it starts to brown and caramelize. That's the Maillard reaction happening. And that's why a brown ale goes so amazingly with a piece of uh, beef, for example. Uh, beer is very versatile, though. Uh, have you guys, how many people here like spicy food? Awesome. With spicy food, the other benefit with beer is hoppy beers can actually accentuate heat. You can go sweet beer if you want to calm down heat. Now, when you're having a spicy food, there's three main problem areas historically. When you talk about the palate, not the wood that kegs come on, but your palate in your mouth, just think of your mouth being a tunnel and you have the front of your palate, the middle of your palate, and the back of your palate, and that's all the way around. It's not just on your taste buds, it's all the way around your soft palate, all around your mouth, under your tongues, areas like that. So when you have something spicy, like your favorite ghost chili salsa, first thing you'll notice is a numbing, burning on the tip of your tongue and your lips, right? Then you start to notice, oh, it's burning down the back of my throat. The third area, I can't really help you with. That's back there. That's later. <laughs> what happens if you have a hoppy beer, it still calms the front and the back palate, but it leaves that middle palate accentuated with the heat. So you can still enjoy that really spicy food. It'll be there and it won't be dulled at all, but you won't have those same issues with it. Try it sometime. It works really well. Um, now, why don't you have beer in front of you? Because I haven't let them pour you beer. Because I'm a pompous ass being around craft beer for 38 years. I'm going to teach you guys how to drink beer, all right? I know, what a, Dr. Bill, you're an a-hole. I've been drinking for two decades. That's all right. Now, this is the way we taste beer. I also judge wine and spirits when we're judging something or when we're doing a pairing or when we're doing hop trials for new beers. And what happens is there's a certain methodology that's involved when you do that. So I'm going to let them pour the first beer, but nobody drink it yet. Okay? That's the rule. All right? And then the cookies are coming out right after. And then as soon as I teach you guys how to do it, we'll go ahead and talk about it. How many of you guys have heard about this recipe? Taste plus aroma plus mouthfeel equals flavor. Have you ever heard that? It, it's true. It works. Thank you, sir, for backing me up. Uh, how many of you heard that 80% of flavor is aroma? It's totally true. Here's how you're going to know that I'm not BSing you, even though that's my initials, I guess. Um, what happens is when you smell something, the sense of smell is by far the most potent of all your senses. Here's what we know. There are six different tastes on your tongue. Now you're like six, it's five, right? It's sweet, sour, salty, bitter, savory, which is also called what? Umami. Umami, thank you. And then now we've done studies where we actually know we isolate fat. So fat's the sixth one. You probably won't see it on the tongue diagrams in your kids' school books because we don't need to tell them more about fat than they already know with Taco Bell, right? So we won't do that, but fat is the sixth. We know that you can hear a couple hundred thousand pitches of sound we know that you can see a hundred, couple, couple hundred thousand shades of light. But what we now know, we used to think it was 10,000 combinations of aroma volatiles. We now know it's one trillion combinations 
Yes, Trillion with a TR. Uh, trillion aroma volatile combinations. The sense of smell developed in an early prehistoric man when we were still hunter-gatherers. Once again, I apologize to our vegetarian here. When you were walking down a trail, you found a dead animal as a prehistoric man. You needed to know whether it was good enough to eat. So the ones that figured out, oh, that's two weeks old, we shouldn't eat it, became our ancestors. The ones that chowed down became basically poor protoplasm. So that was a good thing. Um, also, poisonous berries, when you're a gatherer, they're usually slightly sweet, and so they were able to develop the sense of smell. So now what happens is, when you taste a beer, it's all about the aroma. And here's how I'm going to tell you. Remember, you can't drink it yet. You can smell it, I guess, but you can't drink it yet. That 80%, what's going on? Taste buds, come on, Dr. Bill, it's not, it's not 80%. Yes, it is. How many of you guys have been sick and stuffy, tried your favorite food or drink, and it didn't taste right? It's because you can't smell it. If you don't believe me, try your favorite delicious Snickers bar, plug your nose, and take a bite and chew on it. It won't taste the same. Then unplug your nose. It's amazing. Here, I'll get all you guys on this. We've all been out drinking late at night, drive, excuse me, getting a ride home. And for us in California, it's In-N-Out Burger. You've been out all night, so plug in your best-smelling restaurant in your hometown. For us, it's In-N-Out Burger with the charcoal billowing up out of the restaurant. And next thing you know, you've been out drinking all night. You know you shouldn't get that 1,000-calorie, double-double animal style, but your designated driver or your Uber driver's pulling in the drive-through for you so you can get that burger because it smells so good. You start to salivate, and that's what's going on. So what actually happens is your sense of smell, you breathe in what's called ortho and retronasally, in through your mouth and out through your nose and also in through your nose. It goes up to your olfactory gland up above your sinus passageway and that commutes information to your brain, down to your gustatory nerves, which are just not on your tongue but all over, to your taste buds. And that's what tells you, I want that. I want that pepperoni pizza that those people next to me are eating and I've been waiting too long for mine kind of thing. You want that. So that's what the aroma is all about. So what I want you guys to do is pick this up, swirl the glass, and smell the beer. Trust me, after this, I won't, I'll let you drink faster and eat faster too, but we're gonna go through this at the beginning, guys. Breathe in through your nose. You should do short sniffs, a long draw, in through your nose, in through your mouth. You'll start to pick up some characteristics, different things. This particular beer is our Stone Cali Belgique IPA. How many people have had Stone IPA before? This is the exact same beer with six billion differences. That's the Belgian yeast cells that are in this bottle of beer. And what that does, normally Stone IPA has this great, it's a 6.9% IPA, citrus and pine notes from the hops. When you add in the fruity esters from the Belgian yeast, it adds in pear and pepper notes. And so it makes it very complex and very interesting. And that's what makes it so it's not overly bitter, not, not too hoppy, it has that much more subtle note. For years, this was our gateway beer where other people had a Pilsner, Stone's Gateway beer was Kelly Belgique IPA because it was the mellowest beer for that BMC drinker. You guys all know what the BMC drinkers are, right? Bud Miller Kurz, the guys with the pretty blue mountains that turn cold, the fluffy horses that kick field goals at halftime of the Super Bowl, those guys, fizzy yellow beer drinkers. Well, this is a good gateway beer for them that we've had and we've done. So now that you've smelled it, I want you to taste it, but what I want you to do is take a very small sip and vigorously swish it around in your mouth like this. What that does, it cleanses your palate. It cleanses the palate from the beers heat she had earlier for the gum you just stuck under the table. Not really, she didn't really do that. 
or the cigar he was smoking with me earlier. Now I want you to take a very small sip, let it roll to the front of your mouth, part your lips, be careful, you've been drinking a lot, don't dribble on your shirt or blouse, and pull air back, kind of do this. Now, be careful, don't look directly at the person's head in front of you, because if it goes down the wrong way, you'll spray them, trust me, I've seen it happen. Uh, last year at Saver, as a matter of fact, so be careful. Uh, so that opens up your palate, and what that does, it makes a sour beer not as tart, a hoppy beer not as bitter. Any, any red wine drinkers out there, it's okay to admit that, I love wine. Uh, Cabernet, not as tannic. Isla whiskey drinkers out there? Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, it's not as peaty. It basically helps your palate develop towards that. Now you go ahead and take a taste of the beer and you can get a true taste of the beer because you've cleansed and prepared your palate. Now I'm not saying you're gonna go to your favorite pub and do this when you sit down and order a beer because they'll probably look at you funny and slide you down to the end of the bar, but it's a great way to assess a new beer, especially with your at home or you're being uh, good, uh, beer aficionados and teaching people about beer. So what do you guys think of this beer? If you don't like Belgian beers, you're not gonna like it. But it's fabulous. And it pairs really nicely with the raw, raw raisin, which is that little teeny crumb you have on your plate because those damn Girl Scouts didn't bring the rest in with them. So go ahead and try that. A lot of people ask, should I taste beer first or food first? It really doesn't matter as a rule. If you're more familiar with one than the other, it's fine, because normally you're taking multiple bites of it, right? Not in this case, but multiple bites of it and, and having the beer. The only time I would say to take the food first is if you're trying cheese pairings. If you're doing a cheese pairing, what works really well is putting the cheese in your mouth first, because it basically coats your palate, and then letting the scrubbing bubbles cleanse it, but also the, the beer works really well and plays with it. And so it's always a really fun pairing. So I want you guys to go ahead and try this and let me know what you think. Stone, Kelly Belgique IPA, 6.9% with Ardennes uh, Belgian yeast. So for me, this beer counterbalances the hoppiness. It brings out a really sweet oatmeal characteristic on, on the palate, and then the raisins come in as a little extra surprise. So it's a really fun, fun cookie. Sorry you guys only got a quarter of a cookie, but <laughs> hey, now you know what to order them next year and what six-pack you're going to get, right? Um, actually goes great with any Belgian-style golden ale. Duval, West Mall. Any of your local craft breweries that you support or love, if they're doing uh, Belgian Goldens or Triples, or it's a little too intense for a wit beer, but it will work really well with, say, a Saison, like a DuPont, for example, which is fabulous. How'd you guys like the pairing? Great. Uh, the rest of you are out? You don't know? You... How many people hated the pairing? I always love a good argument. Anybody hate the pairing? Now, one of the keys when you're doing pairings is you want to have... People, my favorite compliments are when somebody goes, I normally hate this beer, but with that food it was great, or I never eat this, but oh my God, I had it with the food and I took it, or with the beer and I had a second bite. So that's what you want. You want to see them elevating. Now let's talk a little bit about some terms that are thrown around in the pairing industry. Cut, contrast, compliment. You know where all those terms came from? No, not the BA, even though they talk about them on the thing. Wine. And why do they talk about them in wine? Because wine has a lot of issues with pairing. 
it's really hard to pair wine with spicy foods, certain vegetables, certain fruits, even certain cheeses, believe it or not. Wine and cheese do not go together. And if I have time, I'll tell you the story. How many people think wine and cheese go together here? Yeah, you're wrong. But it's, uh, it's and I'll explain in a minute, but it's because we normally think wine and cheese go together. A little bit of bread, a little bit of wine, a little bit of cheese, a little bit of music, a little bit of romance, right? You think that, but that's not really why. What you're having is really good cheese and a really good wine, hopefully. And so what you're getting is that togetherness, but they don't actually match up very well in most cases. Some wines work better. Uh, champagne, why it has scrubbing bubbles, so it works really well with fatty food, just like uh, hoppy bitter beers or all beers as a whole, for example. So it works really well, but I'm not going to get into that. Yes, sir? That's why I said that, champagne. You weren't listening, sir. Cut him off. Um, Actually, if you'd like to know, because I do lectures all the time on these subjects, you're right, 5% of wine has scrubbing bubbles. All the rest is still wine. Matter of fact, how many of you guys think wine is to be laid down? Believe it or to be cellared. Believe it or not, 98% of all the wine purchased in America is consumed that week of purchase. Now, I have wine in my cellar, but I understand what they're saying. You buy a bottle of wine, you want to drink it with dinner that night, right? So you're not too concerned about that. You just like wine and you want to enjoy that, all right? Um, let's talk a little bit about beer and cheese and why they go so well together. Remember, I talked about the scrubbing bubbles. I talked about the bitterness cutting through the cheeses. Here's something else you got to think about. What, what's one of the four main ingredients in beer? Barley, grains, right? Grains or grasses. What are the, uh, hopefully you're only getting cheese from these four, three animals, maybe a buffalo. Goats, sheep, and cows. If you're getting milk from any other animal for your cheese, you're wrong. I'm just telling you that right now, okay? Uh, but they eat, they eat grains and grasses. That's why when you have some great goat cheese and it's, oh, sorry, I gotta finish my beer, hold on. A great, um, goat cheese and it has hints of lavender and it's probably because they were grazing in a lavender field. And that's why I say sawn with lavender is so amazing. They're both artisanal farmhouse products historically and they go great with cheese. So let me talk about this pairing and then I'll actually back up my statement about wine and cheese not being a fabulous pairing. This beer, who can say this beer's name properly? Anybody? Yeah, nice try. This is our Pataskala, oh, you're not looking at, they're probably not letting you look at the bottle. This is our Pataskala Red X IPA. And, thank you, sir. And you want to come up? I got extra mics. Um, Pataskala, why did we use Pataskala besides the fact that Stone always has beer names that are either 14 words long or unpronounceable words? It's because one of our founders, Greg Cook, came from Pataskala. That's his hometown. And he, we first brewed this beer for a charity event for one of the schools, and then we redid it. It's got Red X malt, and Red X malt is really fun because it gives a really vibrant red color, but it decreases the maltiness compared to a typical amber ale, so the hops still sign through. Now, you guys look for like a pretty savvy bunch, all except that one guy. So <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to Beer Tasting 201 and let you combine the tasting. Now, what you can do, it's still dangerous to the back of people's heads, but you can do this. 
You've now combined those first two sips. You've only wasted one sip, and now you're actually getting more of that yummy beer to taste. So this beer is really fun. One of the things I like about amber beers or amber malts, they go perfectly with red sauces. Whether we're talking Kansas City barbecue, uh, spaghetti sauce on your pizza, on your red sauce. Greg's not in here. Ketchup goes really well with ketchup. Um, it does. Try it. Um, what happens is, how many people have ha heard of Sunday gravy? Sunday gravy is an all-day red sauce that uh, Italian immigrants used to make here. And one of the ways, because tomatoes are so acidic to cut through the acidity, is to add some sugar to it. That's a little trick to cut through the acidity. Well, the maltiness in the beer actually balances out the tomato sauce is really nice. And that's why, now, Garrett, I'm sorry, not with the... Uh, Hawaiian-style pizza with the pineapple and the Canadian bacon. I know you're on board with me. You don't like it. Thank you. Um, that's just wrong, by the way. I'm just saying that, stepping out there. We can talk later if anybody disagrees. Um, but a classic pepperoni pizza, this is amazing with, for example. So what we're doing this with is a Samoa. A Samoa is this nuggety little piece right here, my favorite Girl Scout cookie. Um, it's got, it's got uh, roasted coconut on it. And normally you'd think, wow, this would go great with a stout or a dark beer. But I paired it with this, and I think it's kind of fun. So go ahead and enjoy, guys. What happens is the bitterness accentuates the sweetness. And so you get more of the coconut, more of that caramely, chocolatey goodness that just comes and stays across your palate. So it basically intensifies the cookie without being too bitter and overwhelming on your tongue. After the first sip, it just keeps getting better. Plus you have a whole cookie this time, so you can have multiple tastes. All right, let me back up my statement on why wine doesn't pair with beer. I'm a historian, I've, I've studied things like this. Michael Jackson was one of my mentors, not the guy with only one glove, the famous Scottish uh, beer and uh, whiskey expert. Um, and he's, he agrees that wine is, or he agreed that wine does not pair with cheese. And here's how we know this. Historically, you had areas in Europe where every, first of all, let me tell you one thing, every great national, every great country in the world drank alcohol. I mean, why wouldn't they, right? So everybody has alcohol origins in their different uh, countries. Now, in Europe, you had what was called the grape belt where you could grow grapes, and that was Italy, Spain, France, Portugal, and Greece. And then as you went farther north, it was all about the grain, even though you could still grow some grapes. If you went to the west, you had Normandy and England, so it was all about perries and ciders, perries or pear ciders. And then in the, all the way up in the frigid north, you couldn't really grow much, but you had bees, and they made honey, and you made mead. So you always had something tasty to drink. Now, because the majority of the population through the Middle Ages, before the Industrial Revolution, lived on farms, they subsisted off those farms. They didn't have those tasty 7-Elevens where you can go get a chili cheese dog and nachos in the middle of the night. You had to milk your own animals, once again, preferably what? Goats, sheep, and cows, okay? Maybe the odd buffalo down in Italy. Um, and then what would happen is you'd bake your own bread, you'd eat grains and cereals, you'd, uh, you'd make your own beer. You'd make your own beer in the kitchen, by the way, and 
the person that brewed that beer was a Brewster or a woman. So actually, when you take all, the, all of humanity and the amount of people that brewed beer, believe it or not, there's been more female brewers than male brewers in the history of the world. So let's have a round of applause, girls. <laughs> Represent. You might get a little protein going on, uh, but it was pretty uncommon. More you wanted to get the eggs, you picked the vegetables, the fruit, things like that. So historically, you made cheese. That was one of your sources of protein along with the milk. You couldn't drink the water because it was bad. Too much bacteria, uh, too much, you know, di you know, the black plague, things like that. Uh, so you had to be very careful with what you drank. So you drank, and that's why when you go to Europe, you see teenagers and kids allowed to drink low alcohol wines and beers because they didn't want the kids to die just because they were underage, you know. Um, so what happened was, you would historically have some cheese and some bread, maybe some meat, some, some dried ham that you had dried, or, or dried meat, smoked eel, whatever, and you would have your wine. And so historically, we think of that romantic thing because the Europeans continue to have that. Now what happened was, in the central part of Europe, you had beer and cheese and, and bread and grapes and all that stuff. But you're saying, okay, Dr. Bill, you're rambling, but you still haven't told us why uh, wine doesn't work. Here, here's how it works. In the early turn of last century, there were Italian restaurants and French restaurants in the big city. Those are the two mother uh, food cultures that we take a lot of our food that we have had here in America historically. And what would happen is the Italians would have a big wheel of Parmesan and they would have some Chianti and at their restaurants that they would ship over or they'd make themselves. And the French would bring over Champagne, Burgundy, and Bordeaux, basically. And they'd bring over great cheeses, Brie's, things like that. So as you're in these major starting metropolitan areas like New York, Boston, Detroit, believe it or not, because the auto industry had great restaurants, places like that, other non-Italian and French restaurants that were started by Americans wanted to imitate them. The only problem is, they all served their great wines, and it was too expensive to get those wines at your regular uh, mom and pop place or your steakhouse. So what happened was they used American wine. And before Robert Mondavi, I have one word for American wine. It sucked, that's two, sorry. Um, sucked. Um, American wine was horrendously bad. And so how many of you guys have ordered a cheese plate before? When is it on the menu? It's at the beginning, you have it as an appetizer, right? How many of you guys, well, you do here in the United States. How many people have been to Europe and seen that they order it and serve it for dessert at the end of the meal? That's where it's historically supposed to happen. You're supposed to have it towards the end. And what they did here, because the wine was so horrendous, they started serving cheeses at the beginning of meals as just giving you offerings of cheeses to serve to hide the poor quality of the wine. And that's why today we know terms like Limburger, Camembert. How many people have heard the term Limburger cheese before? How many people have actually had Limburger cheese? About 10% of the people held up their hands. The reason why we know it from the Tom and Jerry cartoons where they'd have the cheese wafting up and the eyeballs would be crossed out is because they would get the stinkiest cheeses possible to serve with the wine because when you sit down in a restaurant, what's the first thing you do? You order something to drink, right? If you're going to order a glass of wine, you need to have that mass. So they'd have cheese that they put on the table when they'd bring your wine, and they would serve very stinky cheese to mask the poor quality of the wine. If you don't believe me on this story, 
too bad, no. Um, ask any master sommelier and they will tell you that. They know that cheese is always a challenge for them. The average wine seller, things like that, they historically just do it out of tradition. But really, that's the reason why we serve cheese and we serve it at the beginning of our meals, because they had to mask the poor quality of American wines. Now wine's much better, you don't have to do that, but it still doesn't pair that well, because rich, intense fattiness doesn't go as well with that. Okay, so this last pairing, how many like the second pairing? Good? Show of hands, all right. You can applaud at the end, I might, I might screw this one up or something. No, I didn't screw this one up. Um, how many, who did not like it? All right, remember, tell me why you didn't like it after when we do question and answer, all right? Say, hey, remember me, I held my hand up when I didn't like the Pataskala, I'm that guy? Okay, ask me that. So this pairing is our newer Imperial Stout. It's called Americano Stout. It's lower alcohol than our regular Imperial Russian Stout, but it's still an Imperial Russian Stout. And it's made with Ryan Brother Coffee, a local roaster from San Diego, which is quite amazing. And so this is gonna have amazing notes. Oh, I didn't finish my beer, so I didn't get any. So hopefully, hopefully I'll get some here in a minute. Thank you. She was waiting, she was on the ball. And this is just a thin mint, okay? As they would say in Monty Python, just one thin mint for you to finish. So this is a luxurious uh, buttercream cookie with chocolate-flavored mint. Normally when you have a stout, you naturally, from the roastiness, have coffee and chocolate. If you add coffee or chocolate, you're gonna get more intensified flavors. They pair naturally very well with things like chocolate, coffee, peanut butter, coconut, vanilla, which are why bourbon barrel stouts are so popular, because when you age a stout, vanillins and coconut are what comes through. Little pet peeve, when you age a stout in a bourbon barrel, three months is all the time you need, trust me. Really, it is. That's when you pick up the vanillins and coconut. If you leave it in a longer time, you're imparting all the oak flavors. And what happens is if you stay really long and have oak flavors, and then you open a 10-year-old Imperial Stout, which I do because I have all those old Imperial Stouts, actually the vanillins go away and it starts to pick up cinnamon notes. And then you also on top of that get soy sauce and Venice notes, wine-like notes from the oxidation of the aging. But lower, I know it's really cool to say I aged my Imperial Stout for 12 months, 18 months, two years, but really three months, try it. You impart everything you need in a great Imperial Stout to be able to do that. And so it makes it very fun. Stouts work really well. A big stout like this with uh, all, all those des dessert flavors I talked about and blue cheese. How many people love blue cheese here? Blue cheese and Imperial Stout is amazing. I do a tasting every year called Black and Blue where I do seven black beers with seven blue cheeses. It's very intense but I don't even allow any lemon in the water to cleanse your palate. But it's very intense, but it's quite an amazing uh, tasting experience and quite fun. How many people like this pairing? All right, I dare anybody say, that. who didn't like this pairing? Come on, somebody. No? All right. You? All right, I'm gonna remember you too. Garrett, put your hand down. All right. Um, so Americano Stout's one of my favorites. Uh, do you ever know why we call them Imperial Russian Stouts? 
Alcohol now is a pretty common thing. Higher alcohol, imperial stouts. Uh, imperial is used as a term for high strength. But historically, Catherine the Great, the last Tsarina of Russia, would come to England to visit her royal cousins. She would taste stouts and porters that were produced in England. And she thought, oh, that would be a great idea to have in my cold St. Petersburg palace during the winter months in Russia. Now, I will tell you from experience, even though I'm not a doctor, I, w I worked in medical field as I was a medic for over 27 years. Alcohol does not work well in the cold if you're stuck in a snowbank. Unless you're not going to survive, then you can drink it. But otherwise, it lowers your blood, your body core temperature. So, so don't think that you can go sit out and make snow angels and drink alcohol and, and be okay. Because if you can't make it back to that warm fire, you're going to be in trouble. So anyways, she wanted to try stouts. Just like with the story of IPAs where they only had two forms of preservative prior to uh, refrigeration, which was higher alcohol and hops being added to the beers, they would do that for the imperial stouts that they would send her. Because the early voyages would go through the Baltic Sea, go on land for about a month and a half, and it would take two to three months, the beer would spoil. Because believe it or not, prior to the Industrial Revolution, 95% of all beer had three things in common. They were all smoky, they were all sour, and they were all dark. And why was that? Prior to the Industrial Revolution, you dried all your grains over an open fire. So just like when you smell your clothes the next day after hanging out at the campfire all night, it's all smoky, that's what would happen with all the grains. Also because they couldn't do, use a kiln where they can indu indirect heat, everything turned brown, muddy, most of the grains that they did. Unless you basically did simple tricks like laying them out and letting them dry, but if you did that outside, the rodents and birds would all come and eat the grains. So until the kiln, there were not really any pale ales or pale lagers till 1842. So what would happen is these beers would be like that, and then how are they all sour? Because they didn't know anything about cleanliness and they'd all spoil within two to four weeks. That's why they'd always blend beers and keep old stock ales for up to 10 years and blend them with new beers to hide those imperfections. So they would send it to her and it was all bad. So what basically happened was they added the alcohol strength. They finally got it to the right point where it survived the voyage and the trip to her over land. They called it Russian stout because she was the Tsarina of Russia and they called it Imperial because she was a Tsarina of Russia. Now we don't think of it that way, but that's why they're all based off an Imperial Russian stout. Little trivia question to get your friends. The only porter that's produced style-wise that's not an ale, because porters and stouts are all ales, is Baltic porter. It's made with lager yeast. And when people are talking about whether it's an ale or a lager, it's all about the yeast that's initially done. That's the deciding factor. Even if they do a hybrid beer, it's about the yeast, and that's what makes it. So when they landed in the Baltic countries of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, what would happen is they tried the beer and they liked it, but they were all lager producers, so they only had lager yeast at the time, so they would make a lager version, and that's why the Baltic Porter historically and traditionally should be created as a lager beer. It's different than an Imperial Porter, like the one we poured at Stone tonight if you, and last night if you guys were there. So it's a cool little fact that that's the only lager that's in there. How do you guys like this pairing? I can go on and on, but Bart, let's ask him some questions. Awesome. Who's got some questions? I have questions for you. No. Yeah. 
Hi, uh, thanks. So my favorite Girl Scout cookie is a tagalong, and I was... <laughs> I guess I'm not the only one. Uh, and I was wondering what beer pairs well, in your opinion, with the tagalong? Tagalong uh, peanut butter? Yeah, okay. Peanut butter under a uh, chocolate cover? Yeah. So uh, you could obviously do any type of stout or porter and probably get away with it. What I really like for Stone, it would be our 12th anniversary uh, bitter chocolate beer. That's stout. That's my favorite. But you can do a great black IPA, especially an oatmeal stout, an oatmeal IPA. I, I like, we have a new beer called a Mocha IPA. Out. It's 9%. It doesn't have any lactose, but it has a very creamy mouthfeel because we actually added the cacao and the cocoa nibs in, in with the grain into the boil. And so it gave this creamy mouthfeel, almost like an oatmeal beer where it's very silky. So I, the key is, if I leave you guys with anything before we go back to the question and answers, experimentation. That's why it's all, that's what it's all about. I do very complex pairing dinners, 14 courses of this and 28 beers that I pair together and stuff like that. But when you're starting out, it's great to do, that's why I started things like Girl Scout cookies. I did donuts here last, two years ago. Single dimensional items that are not overly complex are great for learning how to pair. You have everybody come over, you have a dozen donuts or you have a bunch of Girl Scout cookies or chocolate truffles with different infusions and you have everybody bring their favorite beer or you bring a selection of beers and you sit around and try them. Because really what you need to do, it's one thing for me to say, oh, I'm gonna pair a stout with that steak. But here's the thing, if I know you're gonna make a steak, okay, let me give you guys a dish. Say I asked you all to make me a Wagyu sirloin, that's a really good cut of meat, with a parsnip puree, a red wine demi-gloss and sauteed greens. I'm gonna give you guys all credit for making the steak at my temperature, which is rare, mid-rare, but you're gonna all season it differently. Some of you may cook it on a grill over charcoal, over hickory. Parsnip puree would probably be the same. The red wine demi-gloss could be a reduction of Syrah, Petite Syrah, uh, Brunello, Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, you name it, Zinfandel. But the kicker in this case is gonna be the greens because one of you will make the greens with kale and garlic. One of you guys would make a very buttery spinach. One of you would take mustard greens and add red pepper flakes. So now what I've done, it's, I have to look at all the components because you have all these components with beer, right? You have mouthfeel, you have alcohol level, you have uh, bitterness, you have what the grains are doing, what the yeast is doing, all of these different components that are very, very complex. And so what happens is, when you do food, it's the same way. It's the cooking method. Did they sous vide the steak? Did they do something else? Did they do all those different variables? So now when I'm pairing with the red pepper flakes, I'm not gonna do a brown ale or a stout or a porter with the steak because I've now got some heat over here. So now I'm gonna do a black IPA. I still have that Maillard reaction I talked about at the beginning to go with the steak, but the hoppiness of the beer is gonna go perfectly with the spice and it's gonna accentuate it. So when you try that meal, you're gonna go, Oh, I would have had a stout, but when I had it with this black IPA, it really shows off the way these red peppers work integrated into the meal. So when you're trying something, it's all about experimentation. It's all about sitting down and trying different things with your family, loved ones, your friends, hell, your kids, even if you want to. I'm not promoting that Brewers Association. Um, so it's one of those things where you can definitely try different things but yeah the tag along i would probably be a little more eccentric maybe even go with the belgian dark brown uh, like a double it would play really well with the peanut butter and be delicious anybody else yes 
Um, do you do like uh, pairings uh, between wine and beer, or do you just do beer? I or don't. Wine? So I don't pair. I do what's called beer versus wine. I'm 28 and two, by the way, over the last 15 years, and I always do it in wine country. I always go to like this, you know, place where everybody's 55 plus and they only drink wine, and I go there and. Uh, because it's so fun to go up against Psalms and Master Psalms and do it and have a quiver full of beer and we sit there and do the pairings first and the Psalm brings in their wine and we try them. I don't pair beer and wine. What I do pair is beer and everything else. I've done beer and mezcal pairings. I do beer and cigar pairings. And here's the bottom line. Anything that's good, and I'm not talking Taco Bell, sir. Anything that's good has flavor. So if you get artisanal cheeses or breads, or, or go to a butcher shop or have great food or you have great whiskeys or even great cocktails or great cigars, they all impart aroma and flavors. So I'll pair cigars and I'll do a third of each cigar because the flavor changes with the beer simultaneously with food. And if I'm at the right establishment, I'll do it with whiskey too. That's my quadrangular pairing. I made that up, I think. But I do that. It's called Not Your Father's Boilermaker, by the way. But I do beer and mezcal. I do... 13 course fragois dinners, but I've done balut. I've done every food item in the world you can imagine. I, I like gourmet food and really nice food, obviously, but I used to piss our owner off, Greg, who we're very big into organic sustainable, and I am too, and I don't eat junk food, to be honest, other than I'm having these cookies right now, only when I'm doing my pairings. I haven't been to a fast food restaurant other than In-N-Out or a taco shop, probably, in the last 15 years, but he hates it because you go to one of my beer dinners, right? You have this great food. You have these great beers. You go home. I used to shoot these videos called late night munchy pairings because you come home, you want one more beer, and you look in your pantry, and you're going, Funyuns or Snowballs? Uh, so I did these videos where I paired Snowballs, I paired Funyuns, different things like that. So it's all about that, but it's really fun to do pairings. Anybody else? Thank you very much. This is fantastic. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, my question is, I love your enjoy by beers. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the dates? I've kind of gotten a little bit caught up in how fresh the beer is and right. checking the bottom of cans for dates Good. and born on dates or whatever, which is great. But can you kind of maybe uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, IPAs especially and hops and how long they can stay? And, sure. And so... Historically, IPAs were made and they were aged in wood for up to nine months to a couple years. That's historically. That went back all the way to Ballantine Ale. But with craft beer, you want to drink it as fresh as humanly possible. And more stats for you. 98% of all the beers produced in America by craft breweries should be consumed as fresh as possible. Thank God there's so many others of the two percenters that you can age for up to 10, 15 years. Old Guardian, Double Bastard, uh, IRS, all the different big beers that we see, you can do that. But most beers should be consumed as fresh as possible. We have a lot of issues. Uh, you know, the Brewer Association, a lot of the state regulations are working on things about, you know, regulating through the three-tier system, about beer not being left on the shelf. Nobody's really as stupid as stone as far as doing a 37-day freshness beer. Our Enjoy By has an Enjoy By date. It's set 37 days from the day it's produced. Not the day it's packaged, not the day it goes on the floor, 37 days from the day it's produced. So it's some, it drives all of our 
We have 1,200 employees, and a lot of them are balding like me because they have three days to package it after brewing. Then, whether they're shipping to New York or San Francisco, they have basically five days to get it to the distributors. And then distributors are only allowed three days before they get it to on and off premise accounts. All on and off premise accounts have to put it on as emergently as they can. In other words, it should be the next beer that goes on tap or it should go right out on the shelf uh, at your store. And then after 37 days, we go around and police it. We make all our distributors agree to do it and we pull bottles. Luckily, it's very rare that a bottle gets pulled. So it's really all about the brew date, the bottling date. That's really important when it comes to beer as a whole. Um, I sell her all these beers. Thank God my wife only drinks IPA. She doesn't touch my rare $500 bottles, but I can't keep my refrigerator or my kegerator full of IPAs because she consumes them so fast. And I go, that's good, honey. They're supposed to be drunk fresh, but she does that. So yeah, oh, her too? Oh, she's hiding her face, nice. But uh, yes, so drink your IPAs as fresh as humanly possible and get in the habit, please, with all the breweries, with all these new companies starting to carry more and more beer on their shelves, Get in the habit of looking for the date because you're going to be surprised. You're going to go, oh, my God, this beer is nine months old. you got to be careful. Okay? Any other questions? Yes, Garrett. How are you? Good. Good. Hey, uh, you and I have never talked about it, but I'm, I'm interested in your take going back to cheese because I have a pescatarian wife, so there's a lot of cheese consumed in our house. All right. Um, you know, obviously, cows are eating largely barley you know, right. and, and foodstuffs that are coming from farms that are raising ingredients that we are all using to make our beers, uh, but there's never been a cheese made from anything that ate grapes. So how, how does the, the food... Yeah, no monkey cheese that I know yeah, of. Yeah, so how, how would you say there's any, any correlation to the diet of the dairy-producing animals of the world and uh, you know, cheese and how it pairs with beer? Yes, totally. All right. they, because, once again, beer's made with grains and grasses. They eat grains and grasses, and that's what it's about. When I started to talk, I ramble a lot, sorry guys, cut contrast complement, that's in the wine industry because they have so many problems with doing complementary pairings. It's very limited. Here's what I'll tell you. I'll leave you with a little fact that I argue with a lot of my upper echelon beer and food pairing. Every single pairing you ever do is going to have a component of contrast and complement in it. Even if you think, oh my God, these are like the same thing. Like, it's cow cheese made that they only ate barley and now I'm having a malty beer. It's still gonna have contrast. I'll give you an example. You would think a chocolate cake and an imperial stout with chocolate added to it is a totally complimentary pairing, right? But there's bitterness in that stout and that bitterness is the contrasting component that occurs. But we don't think about that because when we're having dessert and we're not drinking, I don't know why you wouldn't, but we're not drinking. What are you usually having? Coffee, right? So it's ingrained in us. When you have breakfast and you have your French toast, you're having coffee. It's bitter versus sweet. So you have that contrasting component, but you don't think of it because you think, oh, they complement each other because I like them together. So that's how that is. So yeah, grapes uh, have issues. I mean, they're good next to the cheese. Um, Champagne's great with cheese. Uh, Sherry's and Madeira's and ports are, especially tawny, because they're oxidized, so they ha almost pick up the imitation of that Maillard reaction. And every once in a while, you'll have a great cheese and a great uh, wine, but they really aren't universally together. Anybody else? Yeah. Couple up here, I guess, Bart. I stopped early because I figured there'd be a few questions. I'm very polarizing like that. 
So you've talked about pairings from the perspective of trying to pair a beer with a food. What about trying to pair the food with the beer? No. Um, historically, so here's what happens. Historically, a chef who's an artist will try a bottle of wine and he'll go, oh, I'm going to make this dish. The problem is the chef's an artist and all of a sudden they get some fresh acorns in and they make an acorn paste they put on top of the steak and screw up the pairing. So I am all about, that's my whole master pairing concept. Always have the food, always know what the food is. Bring your quiver of beer with you so you can do it. That's why you can sit down and go, oh, I know this porter will go with the steak, but oh, there's red pepper flakes. I can try this black IPA. Or you try something really off the wall and you go, oh my God, the saison. That's how we discovered things like IPA and steak because the bitterness cut through the fat and it worked really well. That's how Randy Mosher and I argue this all the time. I think I came up with the first, he says he did, and he published, so. Uh, try a double IPA with carrot cake. It's amazing. A carrot cake, I'm not talking those hoity-toity carrot cakes, I'm talking the good, you know, half inch of cream cheese uh, frosting. The, the hops bring out the sweetness of the carrots in the cake, and then the cream cheese frosting brings out all the floral citrusy notes of the IPA, and that blows people's minds, especially like wine drinkers when you say, Oh yeah, for dessert we're having uh, Pliny the Elder and carrot cake. And they're like, what? And they try it and they're like, okay, it's amazing. So yeah, that's always a fun one. So it's, I really recommend making the beer first. And the way I get around this, because I pair with restaurants and great chefs all around the world, I always just compliment them. I just say, hey, I, I don't know if there's any chefs in here that are gonna hear, tell them my secret, but I'm like, hey guys, here's how it works. You make whatever food you want, I'll pair it, I'll work in conjunction with you after that. If you disagree, we'll come up with something else. But you're an artist. I want you to reach the heights that I know you can. Don't be held back by beers that you think are gonna work. Make whatever you want. We'll come up with something, and we always do. And that's what I highly recommend doing. Just a quick add on to that. If you go to your local craft brewery and you find something you really like and you bring it home and you wanna find something to eat with it, well, that's when you, so that's when you have that beer. You know you already like that beer. You go, oh, that beer will probably be fun with pairing. That's when you get a bunch of cheeses out or you get a bunch of truffles out or you get a bunch of donuts out. And you try them and you go, oh, my God. I really, really, really like this maple bar with bacon on it with this uh, German Dunkel. It's amazing. It is. Um, so you try those things. Anybody else? You mentioned uh, junk food at the end of the night. Yes. Pairing with that, instead of cigars at the end of the night, is there any cigarette that pairs with beer? No, there's no cigarettes that pair with beer ever, ever. Tobacco, you can brew a beer with tobacco. Problem with cigarettes is they have all those. Here, here, let me tell you guys, we're at a point in the history of the United States where it's called a return to normalcy. Prior to World War One. There are only two main food groups, animal and vegetable. I know there's dairy and all that stuff, but animal and vegetable, right? Then we had to start making food that could be held for the troops. And so what's that food called? Processed food, right? And it started us on this long spiral of pot processed food. Things like, these are all trademarked probably, but Oscar Mayer bologna, right? Kraft singles, uh, Wonder Bread. By the way, are there any bakers in here? I'll give you $1,000 if you can reproduce Wonder Bread in your own oven. It's impossible. There's so many things in it, it's ridiculous. So what happens is 
we, we've fallen into this processed food, this fast food thing. And in the 70s, when I was growing up, it was everywhere. All the butcher shops were gone. You went into a grocery store in the 50s, 60s, 70s. 75% of everything you saw was packaged. Now we're going back with having more fresh food available to us. We're having butcher shops start back up, creameries, bakeries in your hometown that weren't there 25 years ago because they couldn't compete with the low cost of Wonder Bread. So we have this return to normalcy and we have it. And that's why I pair cigars because cigars are just tobacco. There's a binder, a filler, and a wrapper, and it's different types and they're farmed things. They're agriculturally farmed. Nothing's treated. Sometimes they're aged for a while and they're amazing. A cigarette is not something that's in that return to normalcy uh, protocol. A cigarette is all about not only the nicotine, which is an alkaloid, so it doesn't go with low pH things, so it doesn't go with wine either, sir. Um, uh, but it's got all those things, you know, there's regulations, but there's all kinds of processed things to get you addicted to cigarettes. It's not necessarily just the nicotine, it's also other things. The nicotine kicks in later and it builds it up. That's why the tobacco companies don't care about what's happening to them in the U.S. that they're losing market share. Because they, Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds, they can go off to Indonesia where every male from the age of five to death smokes a pack a day. They buy the existing cigarette companies, put more addictive crap into it, and, and get them all addicted to it and do it. They're making a fortune there. They're doing things like that. I didn't even get into beer. I'm just being cool about the cigarette. I'm like that. Anybody else have any questions? Speaking of uh, cigar pairings, looking yeah. for a good one for Russian Imperial Stout from Stone. Okay, so our IRS is fabulous with a Maduro wrapper. So a Maduro wrapper is one of the darkest shades that you can get. The, the darkest is called the Oscuro. And what I really like with the IRS is Padron cigars. Uh, they're Exclusivo 1964 or the uh, Liga Privada. Number nine is fabulous too. Full body, full intensity, because cigars that are wrapped really dark actually have coffee and chocolate notes. They treat, treat them, think of them just like a grain. You have a really light cigar, it's gonna be hay-like, grassy, floral, goes with an IPA or Saison. You get those Colorado wrappers, those kind of ruddy ones, they go with barley wine, scotch ales, things like that. But definitely try any great Maduro cigar that you like. Anybody else? Got time for two more questions if you got them. Otherwise, all right. Are you guys all empty? Sorry about that. All right, guys, thank you for coming out. Cheers, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, Dr. Bale. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com. <laughs>